coming. <laughs> Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the incredible privilege of meeting with you and with one another. We love you and we thank you. And we invite you to come and be with us and to live inside of us and to manifest yourself in us and to form your son within us. Lead us now, Holy Spirit, we pray, in this coming time. We ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, we want to talk this in this session about restore the ancient anointings. And as a bridge to that, um, Hannah, I wonder if you would tell us the story of Maximilian Kolbe. Okay. Um, could you, do you want to do it from there, or do you want to come up here? Uh, probably it's not the right way to ask it. Would you please come up here? <laughs> <laughs> um, and as Hannah comes, um, and let me just underscore Christ has the ability to teach us how to negotiate anything that we face in life healthily, redemptively, successfully. Let me say that again in another way. We are not the result of what happens to us we are the result of the decisions we make in response to what happens to us. And when we allow Jesus to inform those decisions, he gives us the capacity to negotiate anything in life successfully. And by successful, you know what I mean. And, and the example of that, again, is... He went through this. And if you read the crucifixion accounts, perhaps for me one of the most powerful images in the midst of all of the horror and trauma that Jesus faced. Remember the pictures in the newspaper of the Iraqi prisoners in Abu Ghraib? Remember them hooded and you know, tied up to all these things. Jesus at one point was taken by the Roman soldiers into the barracks and they stripped him. And we know that the reason you strip a prisoner is to increase the fear and the intimidation. And they took Jesus into the barracks and they stripped him and they beat him and they put a crown of thorns on him. What was that like for him? <coughs> what was it like when the Roman soldiers drove the nails in his hands and lifted up his cross? What kind of trauma was he in? And he went through that trauma in peace, trusting his father, thinking about his mother, 
not condemning those who put him through that. He had the capacity to negotiate one of the most horrible, traumatic deaths imaginable without losing it. He never lost it. And he did that out of the resources of his humanity, drawing upon his father. That same power is available to us. And as we think about restore the ancient anointings, the Judeo-Christian history is filled with examples of men and women who have received the same grace. They have gone through the most horrible life experiences in peace. One of the very early martyrs, a woman who died as a martyr in the, I think it was the year 203, they asked her, she was giving birth in prison and she cried out in pain giving birth and they jeered her and they said, how, if you're crying out now, how will you... Um, endure this death that you're about to face. And she said, there is another who will suffer for me as I will suffer for him. Now she had a knowledge of God that transformed her life. Now this history is filled with that. Yes, we've got the kings. We got, we got them, they're part of it. But there's also countless numbers of people who've lived throughout that history who have met whatever circumstances in life that have been thrown at them through the resources of the Dads in Christ. And Maximum Colby is an example. So Hannah, could you come please and tell us that story? Now, if George had warned me, I could give you all the dates. <laughs> but um, the dates are in the bedroom, so... Um, but uh, I will say that um, Maximilian Colby uh, is very much alive today. Because uh, when we are on the train in Poland, following uh, the journey of my parents, the route that they took to their death. I sat next to a young Polish couple. Uh, he was um, a fencing coach, and she was a political science graduate who was working as a receptionist because there aren't that many jobs. But it meant that they both spoke English. And they were visiting uh, his home, which actually was the station after this very small station. When they came to the very small station, they got very excited. And I could see this banner across the front of the um, station building. And they said, this is the birthplace of Maximilian Colby. And actually, Maximilian Colby meant something um, because we have been in Auschwitz. We're in Auschwitz really four. Maximilian Colby uh, was a Franciscan priest and um, he was very um, compassionate and he founded um, an order that uh, cared for the poor and uh, he was taken 
by the Nazis, um, by the Germans, into Auschwitz. And in his barracks, a man disappeared. You know, they used to have the roll call every morning. And the man was gone. And the commander um, of that barracks was very vindictive uh, and vicious. And he um, uh, announced that 10 of the inmates from that barracks would be taken um, because this one man uh, had disappeared. And the place that they would be taken to is the starvation bunker. Now, we actually went to the starvation bunker, and it is the darkest place in a very, very dark place, Auschwitz. Uh, it is uh, in the cellars, and if you were um, sentenced to there, you never came out, and you died by starvation. And um, they picked the 10 men, and one of them cried out, my wife, my children. And uh, Maximilian Kolbe was not picked, but he stood forward and asked to take this man's place. And mm. so um, he entered uh, the starvation locker with nine others. And at that time, he was already really sick with TB. And during the time he was in the starvation bunker, he maintained his hours of prayer. And all nine of those men died before Maximilian Kolbe. Mm -hmm. And even in his TB state, he did not die. Mm -hmm. And when they came with the injection of carbolic acid, finish him, he held out his arms for the injection. No? And um, it is amazing to me that um, the glory of what he did and his name. I mean, here are these two Polish young people so excited and so proud. Mm. And what is also, uh, very astonishing to me is the juxtaposition of good and evil. Because, you know, uh, not long after that, Hitler died in a bunker mm -hmm. in yeah. Berlin. And we happened to be in Berlin on the day anniversary of Hitler's mm -hmm. death. Mm -hmm. And uh, he committed suicide in a bunker. And, you know, this is great contrast between great evil, and uh, this is a modern martyr, Maximilian Kolbe, very weak, but so strong in spirit. You know, uh, thinking about this whole um, concept of restore the ancient anointings, um, let me just say that this um, came to me um, both as a prayer and as a command. 
So hear those words, restore the ancient anointings as a prayer. Lord, restore the ancient anointings. Maximilian Kolbe is not an ancient anointing. He's a, he's a contemporary, just barely contemporary anointing. But the anointings that um, in one way came through to him, including the anointing of Francis. Lord, restore the ancient anointings in our day. Raise up men and women like this today. But also a command from the Lord, restore the ancient anointings. Now, obviously, what, what do we mean by anointing? We mean the Holy Spirit upon a life. So we know that the Holy Spirit is within us, but now we have the concept of the Holy Spirit upon us. That's an anointing. Lord, restore the ancient anointings. The kind of anointing that Elijah carried. The kind of anointing that David carried. The kind of anointing that Moses carried, etc. Restore those anointings in that day. And when I think of that, and I look at this Celtic cross, it inspires me to share with you maybe some of my earlier journey in this whole area because I came to have a great love for the Celtic church. Now, you know that this is a Celtic cross because of this circle. Definitive of a Celtic cross. And I wish I had a map of the world here, but I don't, but I'm, I bet you you can picture this in your mind. The Roman Empire went from the Euphrates, roughly the Euphrates River in the east, all the way to its greatest extent to the northern part of England. You ever heard of Hadrian's Wall? You go there today and see where Hadrian's Wall was. That was the northern extent of the Roman Empire at its height. So the Roman Empire never uh, reached to what is today Scotland and it never reached to Ireland. The Celts were a people who inhabited much of Europe. I mean, they inhabited a wide spectrum of Europe. They were one of the um, tribes that we might <coughs> characterize as barbarians. They were not an advanced civilization in the way we tend to think of that. They were pagan. They had fertility goddesses. There's a, and when the Romans came in, now the, 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 the Eiffel region where Hannah comes from, as you know, the Romans conquered up the river Rhine. And then they conquered everything to the west of the Rhine. They have never were able to really hold the east, but they conquered to the west. The Eiffel is to the west. And um, they took over, the Romans did, Celtic worship places. There is, a, there is a place in the Eiffel, we've been there, we've prayed there, where there's still Celtic fertility goddesses, three of them. And it's marked as a Roman worship place. It's actually Celtic. The Romans took it over. And people go there today 
And if you go there today to pray, which we did, you can see flowers and other objects that people brought there to worship. So this is modern Europe. We are reverting to polytheism. So it was among these Celtic people that someone called Patrick was called by God to go. And the Celtic people not only were in the Eiffel, but they were in Ireland. So different tribes of the Celts. Patrick was born in Roman England. So now we're across from Ireland. He's born in England. He's actually not Irish, but English. And um, um, he was captured, taken by people, and taken to Ireland and sold as a slave. And spent years there in Ireland as a slave in much hardship. And that time of hardship drew him back to the Christian faith of his parents. He ultimately escaped from Ireland, went back to England. Some think he went to France on the way. We, it's hard to trace for sure a lot of Patrick's movements. But be that as it may, whether he made it to France or not, he ultimately was sent back to Ireland as a missionary bishop. And he went to this pagan people, the Celts, and he was a mighty evangelist, a mighty church planter, and a mighty starter of monasteries. He started monasteries and churches throughout Ireland, so much so that he became the spiritual father of the Irish church or the Celtic church. And so to read whatever we know of the life of Patrick links us into this prayer, Oh God, restore the ancient anointings. The anointing that Patrick carried was profound the fruit of his life, particularly in the midst of this pagan people. I mean, he was a warrior. And we have in ancient wells uh, his breastplate, there are various versions of his breastplate. We shared one together this morning, but there's another version in ancient wells. So that's Patrick and the Celtic Church. Now, the Celtic Church... There, there's something about the Celtic church that I just love, and that is this. Uh, as the church developed within the Roman Empire, you know, the Romans were organizers. So wherever the church exists, the church takes on the culture in which it is. We're aware of that, aren't we? I mean, the Indian church is different than a Chinese church, it's different than a Korean church, it's different than a Texas church. So it's still the church, but they have they take the cultural feeling and norms of the culture around it. So the church that developed in the Roman Empire was very organized, fairly early. You get the structure of the parish and the diocese. But in the Celtic areas that were not yet Roman, they weren't Roman, you get the church organized around the monasteries. 
And the abbots, the leaders of the monasteries, were often apostolic in their calling. So rather than this kind of more organized form of the church, in the Celtic church you get this apostolic release. And indeed that is what happened because after Patrick there was a, a man called uh, Columba. He went out from a monastery on an island called Iona to England, what is now England, the northern part of England, started a monastery in Lindisfarne. <coughs> and from that monastery, missionaries, evangelists, apostles, went out to much of northern Europe. So much of northern Europe was evangelized by these Celtic, you use the word, I'd like to use apostolically gifted leaders. So the Celtic church was a vital church. And um, there were some differences with the church in the Roman Empire, you know, the date of Easter and all of that. And there was a council in 664 in Whitby where the two sides came together and that's when the Celtic church uh, was kind of brought under the umbrella of the church in the, in the Roman Empire. At that Council of Whitby, the Celtic Church acknowledged as its spiritual father, the Apostle John. The Apostle John's apostolic legacy was different than the apostolic legacy of Paul. John was the Apostle who leaned on Jesus' breast. John is the apostle of the contemplative life. John is the only apostle who lived and died a natural death as an old man, buried in the city of Ephesus. John discipled Polycarp. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna, today the city of Izmir in Turkey. Polycarp was also burned at the stake for his faith. That his story is also in ancient wells, in the category, in the part of the restore the ancient anointings. And the report there of his martyrdom is that the proconsul begged him, Polycarp recant. Say that you're not a Christian. And Polycarp said, I have served him all my life. How could I ever deny the Lord has saved me? And the proconsul said, I have beast. And Polycarp says, Bring on the beast. And he was he was he was burned at the stake in uh, this amphitheater of people. He was a disciple of John. He was a grandson spiritually of Jesus. He influenced Irenaeus. Irenaeus and through others came an influence that led to the desert fathers and mothers. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk too much about them. 
And so somehow there's a tracing of this line. We don't know all of the ways. We can't trace it all through you know, recorded data. But there is a line from John to Polycarp to, Pat, to the Desert Fathers and Mothers to Patrick to the Celtic Church to this great uh, missionary outreach. And there's a bringing together in that of the apostolic and the contemplative. That coming together is what we see in Jesus. Mark 3.14 He chose twelve that they might be with him mm -hmm. and that he might send them out to preach. That they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. Do you see the combination between the apostolic and the contemplative? The coming together of being with God and mission. Now all that I've just said is part of an ancient wealth. It's part of our legacy. You and I stand in the legacy of this history. We are part of the movement. We are part of the people, the people of God. These people are our spiritual fathers and mothers in the family. Restore the ancient anointings. Now, all that was introduction. Because what we want to do is talk a little bit more about Elijah and the anointing that rested on Elijah. We got a good start on that um, in, in our talking about the history. So let's talk just a little bit more about Elijah and let's go to 1 Kings 16. And we won't read about Ahab again. Having read it once is enough. But we'll start at 1 Kings 17, verse 1. So we've just read that Ahab, for Ahab it was a small thing. The sins of Jeroboam were a small thing. He did more evil than all who were before him. We've heard that. Then, um, 1 Kings 17.1, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, the richness of that one verse. The richness of that one verse. First of all, who is this Elijah? We don't know who he is. We don't know where, how he was born. We don't know how he grew up. We don't know what education. We don't know anything about this guy. All of a sudden, he just appears. And he says to the king, this evil king, this powerful king, he says to the king, Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, 
I stand before Yahweh. And I'm here to tell you mm -hmm. that in the name of Yahweh, there will neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. You know, Elijah, you better be right about that. <laughs> because if you're right, all of a sudden you have incredible authority and incredible power to say that there won't be any do or rain except when you get the word. But if you're wrong, it could go bad if it is. <laughs> Look at the authority God had given to Elijah. Why did he give him the authority? Because he was going to call his people back from the apostasy that their kings had led them into. So God entrusts Elijah with awesome authority. Now, look at the next thing that God does with Elijah. Okay, here's Elijah. He's been entrusted with his great authority. Look what comes next, verse 2. The word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. God took Elijah and put him in a position of vulnerability. He didn't bring him to some great... He didn't give him a lot of money. He didn't give him press access. He, he took him out in the desert. And he put him in a situation where he was dependent on the ravens bringing him meat. And he was dependent on the water in the brook. God brought him into a position of vulnerability. Patrick. God took him into slavery. Years in slavery. Took him back to the very place that he'd been in slavery. And made him do battle against this people who were uh, pagan worshippers of idols. Maximilian Kolbe. Why did God do that? Here was this godly man, and God allowed him to die, ultimately of a lethal injection, but die. Of, or suffer under TB and starvation in this hunger chamber in Auschwitz. Why did God allow that? I don't know the answer. But I know today we're talking about maximum Kobe. Mm -hmm. And that Polish young couple is talking about maximum Kobe. And if you go to Auschwitz, you can see the cell that he was in. And his story is told. And somehow there was an anointing that rested upon him that is bringing glory to God. But God took him in the depths of vulnerability. 
So, brothers and sisters, here's the question. How bad do we want God? How bad do we want God? Are we ready for whatever God wants? And what if what God wants is not what we would choose? In order for God to do the work in us that will enable us to carry this kind of anointing, God will bring us into vulnerability and weakness. Are we ready for that? It's in the context of vulnerability and weakness that the kingdom of God becomes visible. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of God does not become visible by human grandiose events or ideas or whatever. The kingdom of God becomes visible as we walk in vulnerability and weakness. Another word for it is the cross. And there are two readings in ancient wealth under the section of biblical themes. Death, life, death, life. This is a dominant theme in the teaching of Jesus. And it's a dominant theme in the example and testimony of the apostles. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Lest I be exalted by the abundance of the revelations there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Thrice I sought the Lord to remove it, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will rather glory about my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 12. God took Elijah and put him into a place of great vulnerability. Verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now, I know what I would think. <laughs> First of all, I would think, Lord, you've called me You've taken me out of the desert. I've gone. I've trusted you. And now, Lord, the brook is drying up. Lord, I've already learned this lesson. <laughs> Let's don't do this anymore. I've already shown that I can trust you. That would be my first thought. My second thought would be, let's see now. The brook's drying up because there's no rain. I've got the authority to call I think I hear the Lord speaking. Now is the time. You see, God was forming Elijah. 
Elijah, I have given you this authority. Do not use the authority that I have given you for your own benefit. Use the authority that I have given you only to accomplish my purposes. I will tell you when, not now. Trust me in this. So God was forming Elijah through vulnerability. And God was seeing whether or not he would remain faithful. Now, the whole thing continues. And we read some of that at noonday. Elijah is led to the widow. And the widow is preparing the final meal. I mean, there is famine because there is no rain. So the widow is preparing the meal. And she's going to have a meal with her son and then die with him. But God works through that widow in her vulnerability, in Elijah's vulnerability, to provide for her and to provide for Elijah and to provide for her son. So we get this incredible... The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Often, often, God provides one day at a time. There's enough for the day, and we worry about tomorrow, and Jesus told us, don't worry about tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That was also Elijah's experience. God was teaching him to walk day by day, moment by moment, trusting God for his provision. All of this was preparation for Elijah and the great things that God would do through him. Now, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah the third year, I mean, third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So, Elijah has held this. Now God is saying, the time has come. Go and show yourself to Ahab. And, um, <laughs> where, where is that? Uh, there's a verse in here. Uh, Oh, and here it is. Verse uh, 8. Elijah's having this conversation with Obadiah. Verse 8, he answered him, It is I. Go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Can you, can you imagine? This is Elijah. He, he's come out of the desert. He, and he, he's probably really skinny. He hasn't had a lot to eat. He appears. And he says to the king's servant, go and tell the king, Elijah is here. I mean, the trauma of that. <laughs> and then, of course, Ahab, Ahab comes and, uh, and they have this conversation. Let me get myself here. 
First uh, Kings eighteen thirty six. I, I don't want to spend uh, the rest of the time just on this incredible confrontation with Ahab and Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. Um, and First Kings eighteen thirty six. Notice the difference between the bearing of Elijah and the bearing of the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal, their approach is filled with noise and drama. Verse 36, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, I'm sorry. What's my problem here? Okay, let's keep on going. You know, the prophets of Baal, they were calling out, they were dancing. Elijah was egging them on. He, he said, you know, where is Baal? You know, he must have gone to the toilet. Where? Call out louder. So they were calling out louder and beating themselves. So this is Elijah. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering. And the wood and the stones, and the wood and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. So Elijah's bearing was one of peaceful confidence. He knew who had sent him, and he knew what he had said. And this vehicle, this one guy from the desert, turned the hearts of the people back to God. Now, just a couple of other things. Um, verse 41, um, actualizing God's full victory was costly for Elijah. And Eli verse 41, And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. He missed the banquet. Because his work wasn't yet finished. And he bowed himself down to the earth and put his face between his knees and he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and the wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So here's the picture. They're all down banqueting. And Elijah is alone with God. And in prayer, 
waiting upon God for the full breakthrough to come and the full breakthrough comes so this is an awesome spiritual victory now verse uh, chapter 19 the counterattack. look at the counterattack. First Kings 19.1 Ahab told Jezebel that all, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Bathsheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So here's the point. This is also often true in Christian ministry. There is the great victory that has come as a result of prayer, vulnerability, waiting on God, all the things that are involved in that. That's the great victory. And then comes the counterattack. We need to be prepared for that. If the Lord gives us, to whatever degree the Lord gives us a victory this week, there will be the counterattack next week. Maybe earlier. We need to be prepared for that. So Elijah is immediately in the counterattack. Secondly, Elijah ran. <coughs> out of fear. He was afraid of Jezebel. <coughs> Why? He hadn't been afraid of Ahab. He hadn't been afraid of all the prophets of Baal. He got his eyes off of God and started <coughs> looking at the circumstances and that resulted in fear. And so a key component to this whole reality that we're talking about is to keep our eyes on God. Keep our heart on God. Keep our trust in God. Keep our focus in God. Keep our center in God. When the human soul is centered in God, the soul is at peace and the person is in harmony and order. When the soul is not centered in God, it is fragmented and the person is in chaos and dysfunction. So Elijah got his uh, eyes off the Lord and the result was that he ran in fear. Um, Can I let ask me, a question there? Sure, sure. I mean, it doesn't say why he got his eyes off the road. Do you think it was sort of like, okay, the job is done, and so I'm going to rest now? Or can you expand on that? Like, how did that happen, you know, being such a man of God? Yeah. Well, let, let's review. That's a great question, Michelle. Let's, let's, let's review the... Let's review the process. In one way, Elijah was like a rubber band 
all bound up. I mean, this had been a three-year process. And he had done well. And then there was the drama of this event on Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal, Elijah there, you know, the offerings, the water, <coughs> and then this great victory. And there was the natural, I think, letdown. The natural sense, wow, that's over. Now we can relax. Mm -hmm. Whatever was going on inside of him, I know that can go on inside of me. Mm -hmm. The natural, that's over. We can kind of let down our guard a bit now. Mm -hmm. and, and so when Ahab went back, and Jezebel just uh, came out with this threat on his life. He wasn't prepared. He wasn't focused on God like he had been. That's my best understanding. But the important thing is for us to be aware of that and to guard against that. Um, we're just about um, through here. I want I want to take you to um, Ancient Wells, uh, page one seventy six. was renewed, healed, and restored by a fresh encounter with God. It did not come in the form of a dramatic manifestation, but through a still, small voice. God is able to do the dramatic manifestation. Elijah's experience is more than enough proof of that. But more often than not, God comes to us in the still small voice. The gentle words, George, I love you. Be listening for that. When we hear from our Father, I love you, and we know it's our Father who has said that will heal us. That doesn't, I don't mean by that the healing will be complete, but that will be another step in the direction of our healing. And then God's process of restoration for Elijah included, one, reaffirming his trust in him. God reaffirmed Elijah I trust you. I love you. I trust you. Secondly, giving him a spiritual son. And thirdly, calling him out of a victim mentality. 1 Kings 19, 14 and 18. Let me just read those to you. 19, 14. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and 
killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I'm the only one around here. And then God responds, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So we want to just close by revisiting for one minute this whole issue of the victim mentality. Woe is me. No child of God is a victim because we have a Heavenly Father who is there and always mm -hmm. has been there. And we have a Heavenly Father who can heal us in our present wounds, a Heavenly Father that can lead us in our present questions and doubts, a Heavenly Father that is greater than all of the circumstances around us. And so we are genuinely not victims. And God is calling us to step out of the woe is me mentality. Blaming somebody else. Blaming circumstances. And step into the arena of his grace. And trust him. God had his hand on Elijah, loved Elijah, was with Elijah, reaffirmed his love for Elijah, gave him a spiritual son, but would not join him in his moaning and groaning about how bad he had it. He wasn't the only one. Okay. So we have visited a little bit this, this, this calling, this prayer restore the ancient anointing. We've talked about Maximilian Colby. We've talked about Patrick and the Celtic Church. We've talked about Elijah. Once again, these men and women inhabit the whole of Judeo-Christian history. They are our inspiration. But Elijah is a man, human being, just like us. And if God did that in his life, God can do that in our lives. Mm -hmm. One addition to that is that I was looking through my notes last night, and I think the way you introduced that, George, I'm not 100% sure, was saying something like, God commanded you to restore the ancient anointings or asked you to do it, but it's also a prayer. It was a command and a prayer? Yeah. So that also feels weighty to me. So mm -hmm. along with Michelle, I wondered if you would speak more about that. Okay. Well look, I you know, this is a wonderful theme that you're bringing up. And and the command in the sense, uh, a command form, you know, if you hear restore the ancient anointings, mm -hmm. that restore is a command form. So that can be the form of a prayer or a request, but also an instruction that God is giving us, me, but us together, to restore those anointings. Uh, an, another way to say that without weakening that at all is... Um, 
There is among us today a widespread crippling superficiality. And we are formed to a large degree in our understandings by the understandings that are around us. So, what does it look like to worship? Well, we get in a situation and everybody is worshiping in a certain way, and all of a sudden that becomes our understanding, our symbol of what it is to worship. We go into another setting and people are worshiping in a different way, and it feels weird to us. We get a little bit insecure because we aren't used to worshiping that way. These people are worshiping this way. What's wrong with them? Well, they are responding to a significant degree by what they've also learned and the symbols with which they have been introduced. And so, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, we get our understanding of that largely by what's around us. You know, what do we hear when we go to church? How do other Christians behave? What do other Christians say? And that becomes symbolic as what is a Christian for us. Or what does it mean to be involved in Christian ministry? That also is largely learned. We largely absorb that through understanding, through what we see. We become, and we'll talk more, we, we are symbolized. We'll talk more about that when we get to renovation of the heart. But we are, to a significant degree, we are determined by the symbols that we carry, even if we don't even believe in symbols. And so, um, what does it mean to take the gospel into all the world? What does it mean to take the gospel to Austin? What does it mean to take the gospel to Turkey? What does it mean to take the gospel to Germany? There are symbols that, that, that we're functioning with. What does that mean? Now, the symbols that form us are pervasively and destructively superficial. And this is not anybody's fault. We're not saying this group is bad, this person is bad. This is so widespread and so predominant in the Christianity of our day that we all have to take responsibility for that. It isn't, there isn't any bad guy here. It is, a, it is a tragic condition in which we are submerged. A, a crippling superficiality. And so I'm thrilled that you two uh, experienced Restore the Ancient Anointings as something weighty, because it is weighty. It is, a, it is a call from the heart. Come out of the superficiality. Go deeper with God. Uh, re be re-symbolized as to what it actually is to walk with God. What does it mean to walk with God? This is not something superficial or shallow that we scoop up as we go to do the real things of the day. It is pervasive. It is central. It is transformational. It carries with it spiritual authority. It is incarnational. Now here's another concept I would give you here I am, the question of answer time. You know <laughs> I think I'm answering a question, but you know, <laughs> giving another message. Um, is this an addiction?
prediction? Or <laughs> <laughs> Um, God is a God of incarnation. So we talked yesterday about an anointing being God's hand upon us, and it is that. But do not have a superficial understanding of God's hand upon someone. Because what God first does is incarnate his person in us. So if you hunger for the ancient anointings, go to the desert and spend years there. The anointing will come in the desert. Now we're going to talk more about that this morning, but just I'll leave you with that. Who else has a question? This is a great theme. We need to come back to this. But we want to have a question and answer session. Thomas. I just want to follow up real, what do you think of the idea of a corporate prayer time to dive into that in more depth just in, in prayer I think if we are seeking God for greater understanding for greater I think it's wonderful <coughs> the minute I hear us praying for people to receive Patrick's anointing mm-hmm. I'm, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't say no. But there's a whole part of me that says, do we really understand what we're doing? Mm-hmm. And did Patrick's anointing come that way? Mm-hmm. And how does the anointing come? So I like a prayer time where we're seeking God. God, give us a greater understanding of how these anointings come upon a person. Mm-hmm. Because the answer is deep and transformational and incarnational and a years-long process. Mm-hmm. Now, the minute I say that, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it. He's, the Holy Spirit is not waiting for George to give him permission. He just does what he wants to do. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying don't do that. But I am saying think about what you're doing. And study the people who carry these anointings. Because the call to the ancient anointings is not the call to an anointing. It's the call to a person. So when we seek an anointing, we've got to be careful why we're seeking the anointing. The, the thing that we seek is God. We seek God. And as we seek God, he gives us gifts and anointings, and at times we ask for gifts and anointings, but the asking is motivated out of a passion that he would be glorified. It's not, oh, it would be nice to have St. Francis of Assisi's anointing. And, and when I hear uh, praying for a certain person's anointing, that also kind of makes me draw back. Again, I'm not saying don't do that. But I would suggest this. The anointings of God are unique. Mm-hmm. Now, the minute I say that, of course, in one sense, Scripture tells us that John the Baptist walked in Elijah's anointing. So again, you know, I can't say anything. Anything I say is under the Holy Spirit. But I like to think about the anointings as unique. God has a unique anointing to put upon your life. And if we all were Elijah, it would be quite chaotic. <laughs> so praise God for those. I'm just, I'm just going to say it. Maybe I get to tell a story about this later also. Praise God for those who are anointed to do the food. 
So let, let me talk about that just for a minute. I'm, I know I'm all over the place. <laughs> let me just talk about it for a minute. We, Hannah and I spent 15 years on ships. So we had a lot of conferences there. So let's say in the morning I'm preaching to the pastors because we often have pastors conferences. So I'm preaching to the pastors and let's just say they were really blessed. I mean, you know, <laughs> they're really blessed but if in the middle of the message the air conditioning went off and the room started getting hot which sometimes it did the blessing began to evaporate <laughs> and, and you know at that point you want the anointing to fall upon the engineer. <laughs> Fix the air And I could talk a long time about engineers I've known who had an anointing of God upon them to be an engineer. And they were as crucial to the ministry of the ship as I was or anybody else. Now, one other word about food. I was telling somebody yesterday. We had a German cook on the water. Alfred Boschbach. Alfred was gifted as a cook. Not only could he cook well, but there was a spiritual gifting on him. He could minister to a group of people who were new. I don't know how to explain that, but he could do that. So in the morning, if I'm preaching to the pastors and they're getting blessed, but when the food time comes, there's no food. Again, the blessing begins to evaporate really quick. Lunch is just as important as the message. It's a part of the whole thing. And Alfred had an anointing on him. So there, there are, when we talk about the ancient anointings, we need the Elijahs and we need the Moses, but there's a unique anointing on each one of us. Now, to finish this up, the day came when Alfred came to me and he said he wanted to try to do some teaching. And I was so sad when he said that to me. I'm just so sad because I knew in my heart he wasn't a teacher. And I knew in my heart somehow the message had gotten to him that a teacher is more important than a cook. And so he wanted to be a teacher. Mm. So we gave him an opportunity to teach. People didn't learn. Alfred was all over the place. <laughs> and he wasn't a teacher. He was a cook. But his anointing was just as important. I really mean this. I'm not, this is not, it's not a platitude. His anointing was just as important to the ministry of the whole as anybody's, as the captain's role, as the preacher's role, as whatever. Okay, one more question. <laughs> one more question. Yes. You go ahead, Noah. Oh, I've, I've got a terminology question. I was like, like, I understand when you refer to ancient anointings, it's like people in the past and stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, is that opposed to like modern anointings? Or I, I just don't understand... Well, good, Noah, that's a good question. You know, my understanding is that when, when, what I understand by the word anointing is God's hand upon a person for a specific ministry. And what is so important about the word ancient is that these anointings have been there all the way from the beginning. So we're talking Genesis to Revelation, and we're talking 
revelation to modern church history. So that whole span, these anointings have been there. So uh, the anointings that have gone before us inform us. See, that's why we talked about Elijah yesterday. The anointing that rested upon Elijah informs us about anointings. Now, Elijah's anointing did not come because somebody prayed for him that he would get an anointing. Although, even in this discussion, you know, 1 Timothy 1, Timothy, stir up the gift that is in you through the laying on of my hands. So I'm not saying don't pray for the anointing. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if, if you're going to do that, understand that that's only one component. We're talking about something that is deep and incarnational. So restore the ancient anointings. And we talked uh, yesterday about Maximilian Kolbe, who you know, died in 1942, 1943. There are anointings today. We want more anointings today. So in one way, this retreat is about how do you get this anointing? An anointing as opposed to the anointing. Yeah, an anointing, yeah. When it's the, it's put into our hearts and not into God's good. hands. Good, good. Marie. Okay, so then how you're explaining anointing. From what I heard, we all would have an anointing in the sense that the Spirit is within us, has given gifts uniquely to us. Is the anointing the expression of it with the supernatural power of the Spirit in us to express that in the world around us? Would that be the anointing being seen? Is that, is that how I'm understanding you to say? Because if so, we all have an anointing. And is it seen or expressed, then will we be praying for the anointing meaning that gift within us that's empowered by the Spirit because the spiritual formation would be lived out in a way that was life-changing to the world around us? Is that the anointing? I think that's right. I think that's right. Do we all have an anointing? I think that's worth talking about and thinking about. There is the being born again where the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. Now, the minute the Holy Spirit indwells us, we can hinder the Holy Spirit. So, here's where our symbolism of the Holy Spirit needs to be informed by the anointings, or we can say the godly men and women that have lived before us. And so, we, we can hinder the Spirit. And there can be seasons in our Christian life where the Spirit is um, not all that recognizable. Okay, then there's gifting. So the Holy Spirit gives gifts. A lot to say about that, but we all recognize He does give gifts. Then there is character. And the role of character can be part, or the absence of the understanding of character can be part of the crippling superficiality with which we're all surrounded. Because without godly character, the gifts malfunction. 
So here is here is the gift. Here is the gift. The gift is lays on the foundation of character. When character is not there, the gift malfunctions. Now, we are seeing that widespread in our day, widespread gifts are malfunctioning because of character weakness. When the gift is there, and the, as, the, as the gift is there and the, as the character matures, we are more and more positioned for the Holy Spirit to come upon us mm. in a new way. Mm. And that Holy Spirit coming upon us and increasing fruitfulness is what I'm talking about by an anointing or the ancient anointing that come right up to the present day. So may there today, and there are today those who walk in godly anointings. Do we all walk in godly anointings? I have, that makes me cautious because uh, what if we're walking in disobedience? What if externally everything seems good, but actually in our hearts we're walking in disobedience? Or this also kind of leads us into our subject for the day. Or, what if our understanding of what it is to be a Christian is inaccurately informed by the superficiality all around us, so that we think we're doing what we should be doing, but it's not working. And so, the message that we must be transformed <clears throat> is a message that we must be unformed. And that gets us into our subject today. Okay. I know that <laughs> we're going to have some more question and answer. So <laughs> think about it. Write down your question. This is really good. This is really, really good. So